weird that gay is a synonym for happy, isn't it? Why is that? Because all the gay people I know are on antidepressants. <laughs> That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> This is Pop Etymology. I am Russell Perkle. And I'm Hannah, and I'm also on the podcast. And on this show, we talk about music, we talk about linguistics, and we talk about the meeting point between the two, something they have in common. Uh, Hannah, what song did we talk about this week, or will we talk about this week? Today, we are going to be talking about Billie Eilish's Happier Than Ever, which came out this year. It yes. is a COVID product. <laughs> a COVID product. <laughs> is this a, product a is this COVID? an effective? Uh, is this one of these alternative uh, medicines that conservatives are trying to use to prevent the coronavirus because they don't want to get vaccinated? <laughs> well, it can't be worse than hydrochloroquine. <laughs> I think they're on to the next thing right now. Oh. Yeah. Probably. What's the next thing? It's malaria uh, stuff, right? Or is yeah, they're just gonna thing? take the malaria vaccine because this one doesn't have the microchips <laughs> in it. Gosh forbid that they take their COVID vaccine, but the malaria vaccine, absolutely. Yeah, because that's what the government wants them to take is the is the COVID vaccine. Right. The malaria vaccine doesn't have the microchips in it. Yeah, yeah. But this song, hard to say. Does it have microchips or not? I guess we'll find out. Anyway, uh, sorry, um, uh, Billie Eilish is Happier Than Ever. Sure. Uh, well, who was it written by? It was written by Billie Eilish and her brother, wasn't it? Yeah, so credited to Billie Eilish and her brother, uh, Phineas O'Connell. Which um, is the most Irish name I think I've heard uh, ever. Yeah, you're right. It's very, very true. Um, it doesn't really come through in the song, though. Not a lot of, like, uh, bagpipes. <laughs> Scotland. And, and he is the producer for the song as well. So he is the uh, composer, presumably, and he's um, edited and designed the song. He also is the one playing the acoustic guitar for the song. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice that they have such a nice relationship as siblings. Yeah, true. I mean, it is a, he does have an interesting level of power, right? I guess he could make her say, sing anything, right? <laughs> oh wow i don't think i could be trusted with that much power over my sisters uh, do you think it was like some kind of weird dare that they became like pop music uh icons like a pop music <laughs> oh my gosh well uh she first wrote her she wrote her first song i believe of when she was 13 right well, so I, she was sort of like a, a wunderkind. I don't know if she wrote it or what. And also, you toss around this word wunderkind a lot, so I don't think it has much meaning. You also said <laughs> Olivia Olivia Rodrigo was a wunderkind for what was a pretty mediocre song. All right, I don't know. I don't know the level of pop music. I do know that Billie Eilish is considered very, very good at her job. I'm just saying, you seem to have pretty low standards. <laughs> music is supposed to sound like i don't like music <laughs> well you should have called them wonderkins a lot then i'm just proud of generation z i think they're doing a good job you hear that generation z you're doing good sweetie yeah i, th I think this song was good i i i was thinking about this idea that she was like started really really young and i i guess similar to you i can't really say is she somehow like a virtuoso or no 
you know, but I, I was, I think there, it's kind of like Picasso where like he demonstrated mastery of art really early and then he was able to just kind of subvert it, like do whatever, you know, like. Spend the rest of his career fucking around with it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that a lot of the Billie Eilish songs I've heard, they seem, at least they seem like they're kind of anti-music, right? I mean, Bad Guy, I think, had this real sound of, like, trying very hard not to be a pop song, trying very hard to sound It was very punky in that way, you're right. And one of the songs I like from this album is called, like, NDA, I think. And it's like one of these... listen to more than one? Yeah, yeah, it came on the radio, so I heard it by accident. But Damn it. <laughs> but it's like... One step ahead. It's one of these songs, and I say one of them as if there's a bunch of them, but where, like, the the vocals are, like, much lower than the rest of the song. Like, you can barely hear that she's singing, you know? I think it's such an, uh, such a strange take on it because, you know, it's like we just assume that the vocals are supposed to be, like, front and center in a song yeah. why can't you just have like supporting vocals and main like bass sound or something you know speaking of subversion of uh of pop music uh, we saw this last week um with uh, uh drake when uh, he just randomly apropos of absolutely nothing in the middle of the song transition to making a perfume commercial and i feel like billy eilish did something very similar here where in the middle of the song she was like i'm bored with this song formats let's try another one it almost like she like just her mind wandered off and she decided to make a different song but squished them together i think it happens quite a lot i think it's kind of a i guess we're in the 20s now huh so maybe it's a late aughts no late teens early 20s thing but you know there's that uh drake and uh travis scott song sicko mode that did essentially the same thing um i was thinking for some reason drake does it quite a lot i don't know who else does it but yeah of course mm-hmm. you're right here it's certainly like a sudden shift in song like halfway through i think i think the early part of the song like one thing, I know it's a guitar, but it reminds me so much of like this kind of like beach ukulele music, you know, almost like a yeah. SpongeBob episode or like that movie uh, Third Man by by uh, Orson Welles, you know. It's kind of Jason Mrazzi in that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, to me, I was thinking it sounds so much like this like languishing, lazy uh Jimmy Buffett style. It's like, to me, the, the mood is so Jimmy Buffett, you know. With, uh, if Jimmy Buffett was fronted by, like, um, a 1920s uh, a, a lounge singer. Which is, <laughs> yeah. I feel like, what Billie Eilish is really channeling in her vocals in the first part of the song. Yeah. How is it, though? Because I, I got that feeling, too, and I, I really asked myself, like, what is it about it? Is she... You think she's like affecting some kind of accent or do you think it's something in the sound processing of it? I think it's a very um, thick, very lush, uh, full sound. Uh, and the variation of uh, of the syncopation, like the very, vari- she puts a lot of 
she spends a lot of time on certain syllables and less time on other syllables that uh, uh, I'm not sure how musically that's supposed to be, like, called. Because, again, not really a music person. But um, the way that she sort of... The patterns are very. Uh, the patterns of her voice are very, um, very loungy and very kind of. I don't want to say. Um, I don't want to say lazy, but uh, but sort of like. Um, mm. What is the word? <laughs> Shoot, I have been looking up. Laconic, perhaps. <laughs> Laconic is a nice one. Sure. I like that sort of. Uh, um, Pretty chill vibes, really. She's putting out. Yeah. yeah. The, the, you know, the Eurovision song you chose this week um, from Bulgaria, it has, of course, in some ways it feels kind of similar because it's both kind of uh, women singing in sort of this like vaguely indie rock adjacent um, kind of understated. Area. But I would say, you know, in the, the Bulgarian song, they're really, she's really using this kind of like Sometimes people call it like cursive singing or italic singing where you're really over-enunciating, adding syllables, pulling things out, talk, spe- singing in a very effortful way. Mm-hmm. And I would say Billie Eilish, I think she's not in this, um, not in this mode. I, I think that it's like you say, I mean, there's something kind of um, less effortful about it where I think that she is adopting or changing the voice that um, people tend to sing with in our in our uh, generation you know I, I think this is probably a shift that will have some influence on on culture you know oh okay um so does the you would have a a, a much clearer understanding of this than I would but um that switch from that laconic sort of uh lounge singer to say the Avril Lavigne of the second mm. half of of uh happier than ever uh is that a representative of a cultural shift or that we're going to be <laughs> You think she's like somehow or... trying to somehow trying to make some kind of a sociological statement in her Music no, change, I'm I doubt it. I'm wondering if she's less of less of an influencer and more of an influencee. Of who? I don't know. The <laughs> zeitgeist. Oh, yeah, good thing. Good thing. I mean, I, I suppose we're all influencees. I mean, no one has, like, a completely original idea or something. Mm. But to me, to me, even the second part, of course, much big shift in, like, the, the speed and energy that she's singing with. But I, as far as the... Whether or not she's doing like this indie singer voice, this emo voice, I I don't think she is. I think it's still kind of a much more direct, uh, straightforward, kind of like unembellished uh, singing voice, I would say. Yeah, yeah, kind of grungy. Yeah, maybe grungy. Yeah, it could be. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is that's an interesting thought, I think, because if I if I think about that song and then I think about like a Nirvana song, it's almost I feel as if it has the same register or something. You know? Oh, do you think she's like like just spiritual twins with the Kurt Cobain? She seems pretty grunge now that I really think about it. And tons of yeah. ways, yeah. Seems to have kind of like that counterculture, like not really trying too hard kind of uh, persona she's trying to give off. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and the songs I think seem kind of similar, kind of these like uh, 
attitude, like iconoclast songs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the interesting characteristics of Happier Than Ever that I, I kind of that drew my attention uh, when I was researching it is uh, at the very end, after she after the lyric uh, "Just effing leave me alone," um, <clears throat> she uh, there's a, a you can kind of hear in the background, and it's underneath a lot of instrumental, so you have to listen for it. But there's this really raw section of. Uh, Billy actually screaming. Uh, I was um, really hoping you were going to say backpipe. <laughs> <laughs> this Phineas there in the corner of the of the house with a backpipe. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um and no no uh there's this underneath the instrumentals um if uh i don't know if you heard it or if you uh, no. did any research on it but uh she indicated that this was one of the more therapeutic songs to come out of her covid album because uh she said that she just got in the studio and just screamed off uh the last year and a half for that uh brief section which is a very artisty thing to do i think it is, and also it's something like, uh, if I just go and scream, like, uh, I don't get to then, like, package it and sell it to people, you know? Yeah, how fair is that? <laughs> I mean, I, I never Buy had that my desire, screaming, please. <laughs> so you would love to be a professional screamer? <laughs> do you think, is this something you do on Twitch, you think? Like, Ooh. everyone else is playing video games, and you're just, like, there. You just like cross your fingers and you sit there and then you just like scream for like, I don't know. How long does Twitch's scream, streams last? A, a scream stream. It's great. <laughs> a scream stream. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, Russ, next week we have to do Monster Bash. Or next <laughs> week, let's just scream. Let's scream for like an hour. <laughs> it's technically etymology. Yeah, actually, Monster Mash is not a bad idea. It is a pop song, you know, it is Halloween. So it would be very interesting to see, like, what in there has influenced uh, our speaking, you know. Mm. It's definitely it is... probably one of the most well-known songs ever. And the single best karaoke song of all time, I think. That's something that we should start doing with the songs is we should rate them on like a karaoke level. How would yeah. you rate Happier Than Ever on a karaoke level? Great question. Because, of course, we did talk about um, the Olivia Rodrigo song about how it's a bit easier to karaoke. We were talking about, you know, um, sexier. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking, oh, it's, I must have mixed it. Because I was thinking it was called like Sexier Than Thou. But I guess this is like... <laughs> <laughs> This is like the Middle Ages slash Metallica uh, remake of it, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I think the real, and I guess this is a problem with lots of karaoke songs, but I, I truly think Billie Eilish has a very good voice. You know, mm -hmm. to the extent that if you're trying to sing a Billie Eilish song, it's just hard. Because, like, she's she's doing things with the voice that I don't think I could do even and maybe maybe that's all just kind of like hype and um facade because I I mean I don't know this I don't think she has a big range here or anything so maybe I'm just mm -hmm. imagining it I mean would you feel I would feel totally 
intimidated to try to sing this song what about you yeah yeah i feel like this is one of those songs like where the best karaoke versions are basically just really good impressions of billy eilish mm. so or it's not that or some like... other like huge divergence right you just yeah sing it in a totally different way to try to well, yeah but you would have to do that like on purpose but if you're talking about if uh if you have a hundred videos of people doing karaoke to this song um, the very top ones are always going to be the ones that are sound the most like Billie Eilish. Unless, of course, you're doing Sherry And if you're doing Sherry whoever sounds the most like Cher doing Billie Eilish would be the winner. I don't think they're so terribly far, you know. I think I think they're both singing, for for women, they're singing in relatively low registers, you know. Mm, but Cher has a lot of range. I imagine Billy Eilish does too. Range, but... but are you imagining like as a Sherioki, you would add range to the song because the song doesn't I... have range. Oh man, I, I'm okay. Now I kind of want to sing. Uh, I, I want to do this song in like Cher's voice. Okay, maybe later. How does it start again? Hang on. I don't think on. we can. I don't think we can do that on. The I podcast think we have the rights. I think if we. <laughs> I don't think that anybody has ever claimed the rights to an idea so brilliant. As singing Billie Eilish's Happier Than Ever in a Cher uh, impression. Well, it's a very new song, so probably no one's thought of it yet. You know? <laughs> you have to get on top of that, Russ. But I guess you still have an answer to the main question. So for me, I don't think this is a great uh, karaoke song, honestly. Mm. I think it's too low energy for too long. And then it's also just a bit hard to sing. And, uh, mm-hmm. also, you know, not much of a chorus in it either. So yeah, I would, I would say in basically every measure, not a great karaoke song. The only, the only good karaoke-ness about it is it's not impossible to sing. It's not like a, mm-hmm. um, not like a the baby song where you just literally cannot speak that fast, you know? So it's at mm-hmm. least a doable karaoke song. Is it a good choice? In my opinion, no. What do you think? Mm-hmm. I think that's very fair. That's a very fair assessment. A karaoke song should have a little bit of a party element, and this is definitely yeah. something that brings the party down. <laughs> However, it is very much a song that I can see a teenage girl like singing along to at the top of her lungs when her parents aren't home. Yeah, of course. Just mascara streaming down her face. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a good like uh, lockdown karaoke, I guess, if we ever have another lockdown uh, this would be a good song to, to don't, sing. Don't don't say that. <laughs> I mean, we are we're... so far from the end of this pandemic. You can't just tempt fate like that. We're bound to have another lockdown at some time for some reason. You know, it oh may not be goodness. COVID, but something. Oh boy! We should mention that uh, this week we are in talking about "Happier Than Ever" by Billie Eilish. We are talking about the etymology of the of the concept and word happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people uh, sort of simplify this concept of happiness as relatively new, um, circa the Reformation uh, about thereabouts, uh, is when people the modern concept of happiness really started to uh, gain prevalence. But of course, people were happy before sure. then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel a lot of skepticism about that idea for sure. I mean, I think happiness is such a clear and present emotion that I imagine it probably always existed and probably in a very similar form. But 
I think that it must be true that somehow our ability to conceptualize it the way we conceptualize it probably has changed. Yeah. It sort of reminds you of uh, the um, the etymological history of the color blue. Hmm. Um, how ancient Greeks, for example, did not have a word for blue. Um, and in fact, blue is generally in most languages, the last color to get a name, despite it being considered a primary color. Yeah. yeah, And that's not because it's not, we weren't able to see the color blue. It's just that we weren't able to concept, uh, have a concept of blue as one singular thing. For example, the Greeks, uh, called it, um, a if it was a dark blue, they would call it like a shade of purple or black or green. If it was a light blue, it's often a, a different shade of green. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of African cultures, uh, there is no word for blue because there's uh, very rarely a need for the, to distinguish the color blue. Anyway, I say that to say this, um, just because we had a concept of uh, happiness, the concept of happiness that we have... Um, never really came about until the Reformation. Yeah. Um, that's not to say we didn't feel happiness before that. We just had a different understanding of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, of course, just like with the colors, languages generally go from having not so many words to having more and more and more words. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we use a word to mean something and if we don't have a word for the thing we need then we use like a handful of words or context or or something like that and probably something similar happens with happiness you know in the past like not about happiness but i was listening to a lecture once and he was talking about how in um the ancient hebrew of the bible uh they didn't have words for abstracts this was his claim. I, th- I think that's that's probably going a little far. But uh, And he was saying, like, his one example he gave was, you know, they didn't have a word like angry, but they used the word nose to also mean angry. Because whenever you get angry, like, your nostrils flare, right? You kind of, mm-hmm. Your nose kind of scrunches up, right? That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, I mean, even, even the word nose, of course, we have this word nosy. Now, which, uh, okay, what is the, what what else would you say? Kind of like overly curious or uh, without great boundaries into other people's privacy? <laughs> like what would be the, what's a good synonym for nosy, you know? Um, oh, uh, uh, wow. So in the that... future, will they look back and say like, okay, these guys had no word for whatever their new word for nosiness will be. So they must not have had a great concept of privacy. And then they will look into our culture and they'll say, oh yeah, look how little they cared about privacy. Look how much they shared and how much they let corporations invade their privacy. Clearly it's true. But of course uh-huh. we have we have this concept. We, we want privacy in various ways and stuff. So mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of the same with happiness, right? Yeah, yeah. So that said, um, I know that we both looked into some synonyms for happiness, mm-hmm. um, and we both have a couple of really good ones. Do you want to um, get us started? Well, we should start with happiness itself, of course, you know, and 
one kind of evidence for this idea that this concept of happiness was not so well articulated in the past is that most of our words for happiness and most words for happiness in uh, European languages originally had some other meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And so our word happy, of course, there's an even shorter word that still kind of exists for us, although you basically never see it as hap. Right. If you look up HAP in the dictionary, you can still find it there. And I think it's an insurance company. Is it really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love I love the idea of naming your insurance company something that just kind of sounds like a folksy, like like a lucky <laughs> little little leprechaun guy or something. You know. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> but I I remember this word because like I read when I was in middle school or something. I I read a copy of the Odyssey. Though it's obviously not in Greek, but it was translated mm -hmm. into English, but it seemed to be a very old version because it, it had the same kind of language as the Bible has. Like they said like thou in there and stuff like that. I don't know why. <laughs> it's just a choice, I think, because I don't think they actually talked like that uh, when it was translated, you know. How are you supposed to know that it's an ancient Greek text unless it says exactly? Stuff like, yeah, I think they want to die. give you the feeling, right, that it, that you were reading something really. Old. If I'm going to read Beowulf, goddammit, I'm going to pretend that I am an ancient Dane. <laughs> I, I think that's like probably the best reason to to read Beowulf is just to like pretend you're an ancient Dane. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> If you're reading Beowulf and you do not have a mug of mead on the table and a wolf skin wrapped around your shoulders and a blaring blizzard outside your window, then you are reading it wrong. This is one of these things, like, it's one of those ideas where when you think about it, it makes you sad about your real whatever you're doing currently, you know? I mean, <laughs> wouldn't we all rather be, like, wrapped in a in some kind of a preferably vegan fur... With a like big mug of some kind of possibly warm beverage, who knows? Maybe it's dark. Is it? Is there some foam there? Who knows? And uh, like reading some book in the middle of a snowstorm. You know, does life yeah. get any better than that? I don't think it does. I think I think by the end of this, we have to try to uh, define happiness. <laughs> but we, no, we have to say like, I don't know. But we have to say something about like what happiness means to us or something corny the happiest yeah. situation okay yeah possibly but, that, uh, but... with the context of but all of the uh, etymology it. that we're about to uh -huh. learn uh-huh yeah yeah exactly so uh this word hap by itself i was gonna say like my first encounter with it was in uh the odyssey this this weird translation um mm -hmm. uh, where they would constantly refer to odysseus the hero also called mm -hmm. ulysses as hapless right <gasps> Oh, and so of course I always understood to be as a sort of like um, not very good at your job. It actually just means not very lucky, right? Not very fortunate, really? right? Yeah, yeah. So this word "hap" by itself just was another word for luck or fortune. Um, okay. This actually comes from us comes to us from Old Norse, so this is kind of like a Viking word. Nice. Um, and so it's it's meant luck or fortune, or good luck, chance, something like that for quite a long time. And uh, the root, we can't really see much else different from that. Uh, when you go way, way back, um, 
there's kind of a pre-Indo-European root, something like cob, uh, which just means something like succeed or success, right? Mm -hmm. So still a similar flavor. Uh, this word does not necessarily have to have meant success, right? Because this is a different word, somewhere different in the family tree. Uh, but to give some sense, you know, so it had some uh, original birth from a word to mean something like mm -hmm. success or successful, you know. And I think we're kind of touching a little bit on um, the uh, distinguishing split from the Reformation that the Reformation is responsible for in our understanding of happiness, which is prior to the Reformation, happiness was considered resultant, something that uh, comes from your circumstances, mm -hmm. uh, whether that is good fortune or uh, you know good weather, good family. And uh, prior uh, or after the Reformation, after uh, Martin Luther, actually, it became something that the individual can actually choose. Uh, and control for themselves. Yes. So that's like the big psychological difference, I believe, that in our uh, current understanding of happiness uh, yes. as a science. Yeah, for sure. But that's, of course, there's a lot of complexity there. I mean, like um, Aristotle really kind of conflated the idea of happiness and virtue. So the idea was like living the most virtuous possible life would both mm -hmm. cause happiness and be itself happiness and from in different kinds of periods of history you can see different effects of like how much people would conflate you know being lucky with being happy you know it's like uh if mm -hmm. you were successful and um beautiful you were presumed to be happy or if you were not these things you're presumed to have some kind of virtuous problem some kind of defect you know mm -hmm. um i i just recently listened to some podcasts about uh fairy tales and the history of those and of course this is a big issue with fairy tales is that generally speaking like there's a one-to-one -one, uh connection between being happy and being beautiful virtuous lucky rich uh, of high birth etc yeah. you know and the interesting thing about that is that some of that was, of course, in these stories originally. Um, some of it was kind of put in, right? Because the, the fairy tales, most of the ones that we read, um, come from Germany in, in the 1800s. And they were all collected together by, of course, the Grimm brothers. And mm -hmm. they were trying to create kind of the sense of a German heritage, a German uh, cultural narrative uh, because they were in a country that wasn't quite a country yet. At that point, Germany was kind of just separate, disparate uh, little uh, kingdoms or regions, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And this, um, of course, there were other very successful collections of folktales, but the, the ones that the Grimm brothers made, this was the one that was really picked up on and adopted by the Nazis. Right, because mm -hmm. they really wanted to have this great idea of a German character. There are a lot of uh, stories in the Grimm tales, coincidentally, that are not so favorable towards Jewish people. Right? Imagine so, that. So, I think that, and of course, there's there's so many little threads to pull together, and it's hard to kind of uh, keep a lid on the pot. But you know, 
in the in the American Revolution and the Constitution that was written afterwards and um, the the work of John Locke and Thomas Paine, etc., mm-hmm. there's a similar conflating of happiness with kind of civic uh, duty and success and communal communal um, you know um, citizenship. Which is interesting because nowadays it's understood to be much more individualistic. Yes, absolutely true. Or or maybe it's starting to turn in the other direction. Who can really say, you know? Mm -hmm. But so coming back to this root hap, of course, hap, as as you've gathered, means something like luck. So happy originally had a meaning something like lucky. Um, There's a kind of effect that happens called something like linguistic masking. Uh, which we talked about once or twice before, like there's this this word like trying to or trina, uh, which we have now, yeah. which of course means like I'm attempting to do something, but it can also mean like I'm wanting to do something. Like if you say like, are you trying to uh, are you trying to drink? Are you trying to uh, smoke or a party or what? You know, it's like <laughs> it's not saying like what are you are attempting you to, to do. It's, it's like what are you interested in? What's your intentions, right? And um, so this this thing happens a lot where if it's a situation where it could be either, right? You could be, generally speaking, if you're attempting to do something, you're probably wanting to do it as well. And mm-hmm. those two kind of have a um, similar place in a conversation. And happy, of course, similar thing where, of course, generally, if you're fortunate, you're probably feeling pretty good, you know? So um, these, this, these two ideas of happiness kind of get conflated together you know well one additional thing i wanted to say first is like so the other word that we still the super common basically as common as the word happiness is the word happen you know Mm -hmm. this word of course also comes from this word hap because originally it meant something like to happen by chance to suddenly happen to happen without trying something like that right or happening or happenstance sure sure and we have of course similar usages with chance where you can like chance upon something you know you weren't trying to see it you just found it you know and i think there's some interesting connection to the sociology of happiness there where in our modern times with you know uh positive thinking and this book the secret you know this concept i think we have an idea now of trying to make something happen that for people in the past would have seemed just like completely nonsensical because it's like this idea that you can cause chance you know uh, you know yeah. you have ideas of like creating luck and stuff like that where obviously this this divergence of happen from luck was not intentional but i think that these like ways that they get misused probably have some indication of uh society where especially in america you know it's like if if someone has problems if someone has bad luck if they're poor you blame them you know it's their fault you know nothing just happens you know in this luck sense it's like everything you you make it happen you know that's a pretty depressing way to look at happiness (laughs) (laughs) well let's look at some other uh words for happy perhaps to to try to cheer ourselves up Do you think that'll work? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, let's start with uh, one of my favorites. Uh, uh, gay is one of my uh, favorite. Uh, just because it's not only because, um, you know, uh, 
fuck homophobes. But uh, I do I do really enjoy uh, um, the etymology of gay. It is from the old French in the 12th century. It means lively or cheerful. Uh, and the, my favorite part of it is it's possibly related to the word jay, as in the jaybird. Oh. So it's this gleeful, kind of lifeful, lively, cheerful uh, noise. And, wow. of course, 12th century definitely predates the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And, of course, has kind of the opposite trajectory of a lot of the words for happy, where it used to mean happy, but now it pretty much 100% doesn't. So yeah, now it pretty much means yeah. depressed. Yeah, yeah. I think is that is that um ice cream company Gay Time still in existence <laughs> or did they finally change their name or something? I oh my gosh, the Australian Golden yeah. Gay Time right, um, thing, Gay right? Time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. If you're from Australia and you know that, get at us. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a weird thing to think that like you can take the a word for happiness and and uh, turning it turn it into a negative somehow. You know, mm-hmm. maybe it just shows the how hateful people are, or just right. how just generally like uh, it's like such like something from a Nathaniel Hawthorne story or something. This idea that like you'd be you'd be like angry about how someone else was happy and and you're oh not gosh. because like just this bitter bitter <laughs> bitter. Uh, side of etymology. Yeah, yeah, you just seem to. You can't not imagine that in... with like any other thing, right? Like, ugh, I'm so that person is just so delighted with everything. <laughs> but I think there's there's some point in this kind of uh, twin path of like Christianity and happiness where that was kind of the the thought about it, right? Was that like mm-hmm. you'll be happy when you're dead? You know, you shouldn't be happy now. <laughs> Life sucks, right? It's like. God says in the Bible that life is supposed to suck, so like you shouldn't be happy. You know, only only like a, a non-Christian would be happy, right? Because they would have to somehow believe that life was about like pleasure, right? <laughs> so, do we want to talk a little bit about the Christian um, theory of happiness after uh, after we get your um, your synonym? <laughs> I think I think we'll have to try to. Let it all come as it may, because we probably have about three or four. I mean, there's so much to say about happiness. Oh, yeah. There's no way we'll say it all. Maybe some at some point we'll revisit again in another song. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so let me give you one or two uh, words for happiness. Uh, I, I wanted to start out with one that doesn't mean happiness now, uh, similar to gay in that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word silly. Yeah. Uh, Silly originally had a meaning like happiness. It was it was also it was a Germanic word originally, mm-hmm. and eventually it, it went on to mean something more like uh, deserving of like pity or sympathy in the in the late Middle Ages. Uh, but something that I thought oh, and also it kind of evolved to mean something a bit like like uh, feeble or stupid, right? Which mm. Is a little close to what we have now, although I guess now it usually means something like kind of funny or something. I think silly is probably a very strange word because I don't know if we necessarily all agree about what it's supposed to mean. You know, that's an interesting point. Like I, I I'm trying to think of like genuine usages outside the context of talking to a toddler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only one that I can come up with is don't be silly. 
Yeah, sure. It's never... Don't be silly. And this means like, yeah. uh, um, be sensible or something, right? Yeah. Uh, don't be silly. I, I, I do want to do this for you. Don't be silly. I, uh, of course, I want to um, uh, see you tonight. It's uh, yeah, sure. uh, sort right. of the connotations are very <laughs> friendly. Yeah. Um, but also a little bit. Uh, you're being a goofball, or, or you're being sure. Um... I mean, really, it's like saying you're being stupid in this in this one situation, at least. But of course, you can't say to someone you're stupid. So silly it's is a very like this... affectionate way of saying you're stupid. Yeah, yeah, it's like a softening word, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the reason why I really um, why I really kept it is that this is also this word is also where we get this word silly. Uh, as in the, the fairy, uh, word Seely, right? To mean like this fairy, oh. uh, kingdom or, or fairy race, right? So Seely meant, originally meant something like happy or bright, lively. And so unseely, the other, the other mm -hmm. warring faction meant something like, you know, dark and unhappy, right? Well, definitely keep that in mind for Halloween coming up. <laughs> So um, I did discover a couple of interesting things since we're kind of like bridging this on over to uh, Christianity and the history of uh, um, happiness. Uh, did you discover while you were looking in uh, into uh, your into the uh, synonyms that there are quite a lot that started as quite a lot, particularly the uh, synonyms that have French origins have what tend to be kind of sexual connotations. Hmm. No, and, I didn't notice. Yeah, uh, like the word delight um, mm. has a high degree, uh, it's a high degree of pleasure or satisfaction from the French delit or delitier, uh, by way of delictaire, um, also delicious. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a very, uh, uh, at the time that it came over to um, Old English, mm. it had a very erotic um, feel to it. And that sort of changed because now it has biblical connotations. Hmm. And I noticed that a lot of these French words that started out as uh, uh, these French um, happiness words tend to have a little bit of a sexual connotation. And then hmm. they just start going to church. Sure, sure. I mean, I think because uh, Christianity is such a big part of the history of England and the United States. Uh, I could definitely see that. And I think this word delight, probably it lends itself to that more than other words, just because it, it's, it looks like it has a root in the word light, you know, but it doesn't, it does. of course, not at all. No, no, not at it's all. a complete coincidence. Right. Yeah. Complete, complete coincidence. But, um, so that spelling actually changed. Like, uh, this word came to English in around the 1200s and it, it's originally the spelling was like L I T E at the end. I mean, mm -hmm. we have to be, we have to be very careful to say, okay, it was spelled this way because actually, um, standardized spelling is actually a pretty modern invention right this was kind of something that came around with the uh typing uh with uh the printing press you know before that mm -hmm. spelling was kind of just you just did whatever you like it was a free jazz. for all yeah free for all um so yeah i i think this word delight you know i was uh i i think it gets used kind of in some kind of an intellectual feeling a lot of time even though, of course, we still have this word delicious, which is a very sensual word. We still have a word delectable, very sensual word, you know. 
Um, so we still have a lot of words that carry this kind of sensual meaning, but yeah, this one's totally, totally um, departed. Uh, another French one, uh, cheer, cheerful, cheery. Um, mm -hmm. This one also came in around the 1200s. So it's, a lot of these French ones, of course, do because this was this time we had the Norman invasion, of course, about 100 or so years after. But, uh, you know, give it some time to settle and for things to get <laughs> all mixed up. Um, cheer originally had a meaning like face, right? Yep. So in in our original, we had like good cheer. And this just means you had a good face. You had a positive face on. Oh, that's kind of cute. You have good cheer. I like your face. And we see, we see um, from this, we can kind of go back to the Latin is something like cara, right? So it's, of course, mm -hmm. to mean face. Um, and to me, I, I think you can kind of see again this connection to older uh, words, older ways of thinking about people, about emotions, kind of having a more external feeling to it right where where you didn't necessarily care so much about what was inside a person's mind or you didn't make so much of a distinction right between the smile on their face and just the concept of happiness itself you know because why would anybody lie about how they were feeling <laughs> yeah great point right <laughs> it's not like anybody it's... was gay or anything that had been <laughs> <laughs> I do like how um, the phrase, uh, what cheer, uh, which was first recorded about um, uh, the 15th century uh, in England, the greeting, what cheer, um, it, it migrated via the Puritans all the way through Canada and all the way through the uh, uh, North American colonies. And uh, you probably recognize it today as watcher. If you uh, ever read Harry Potter uh, and you were always wondering what Tonks is saying uh, when, when she talks to Harry and she says, Watcher, Harry, hmm. it's just a, a simplified way that's very, very, very old way of saying what cheer, like what's up with your face. Wow. So, so whenever you say what cheer to somebody, you're saying like, what's wrong? Either what's wrong or what's causing your face to look the way that it is. So no Which, matter again, what, you could say, what are you smiling about? What are you sad yeah. about? What are you angry yeah. about, et cetera? Every, everything uh, falls to just what's here. Yeah. No kidding. No, I, I yeah. had no idea. So I was, uh, I thought I was um, a very cheerful fact to learn. Mm -hmm. And we should mention like cheer, of course, now has a very, very different meaning in this idea of just to like, shout something uh encouraging right so cheer mm -hmm. somebody on or or something i think this probably originally came from cheerleader right because you're cheering the positive morale and then of course because cheerleaders were shouting things you know then cheer <laughs> itself just came to mean like to shout you know so that kind of brings me to uh, the next one i want to talk about which is glee which a has a very similar um, uh, root, a similar etymological root. Glee, of course, is uh, from the Proto-Germanic, uh, sorry, gloium. I, I practiced saying it yeah, a lot. It's great. And uh, <laughs> try, I'm, uh, you know, my pronunciation's probably off, but the uh, Proto-Germanic gloium means entertainment and mirth. Uh, so this gleeful sort of 
perception that we have today. This glee, um, the the implication is a lot of uh, boisterousness, a lot of loud. Oftentimes, and especially now that uh, that glee clubs have become mm-hmm. such a popular facet of culture, uh, musical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Like the their origins of it came in music oftentimes or somehow uh, connected with music and now in glee club i don't know was that accidental or did they um was that a straight line from this concept of a glee club as a as a musical um um club or not you know so uh it, it the word glee actually began as a very poetic word um prior to but it was uh, rendered obsolete by 1500 which means that it's a word that shakespeare would have turned his nose up at hmm. the word glee is so it was so obsolete by the time shakespeare got a hold of it that he wouldn't have used it in his dialogue so <laughs> even now um, i would say it feels like a very old like when when could you possibly say glee and not sound like some crazy time traveler or something. <laughs> right? It, not until, actually, until the did, 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 uh, late 18th century, mm-hmm. uh, about uh, 1780s, thereabouts, when it uh, came to mean a song. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was resurrected, literally, uh, from like the depths of obscurity to mean mirth glee just because at the time old stuff was becoming fashionable again yeah yeah and now now i guess just this idea of a glee club and the few uh christmas songs that it that it's in probably is what Mm -hmm. uh carries it forward for us you know yeah which um and always and a little bit of um snark i would think i would think that if you're referring to somebody's face as gleeful i would probably think that they're being sarcastic or something yeah or sometimes sometimes it seems like it's like used to to suggest some kind of like chaos character or something (laughs) like that joker (laughs) is probably laughing with glee or something like that that's true that is that is definitely a, a good uh good point but I, I think a lot of our words kind of seem to be carried by Christmas, you know. And mm-hmm. one one word, of course, one of the main ones, Mary, right? It's, it's, it's so weird how we don't say Mary anything else. We don't say, like, Mary Valentine's Day or something. <laughs> and Why is that? There's not too too much of a reason. I, I think just generally, like, old um, older words, as with... Um, what was the one we were just looking at? Like, uh, as with silly, like, don't be silly. Like, old words tend to be kind of fo- kind of uh, in the amber of collocations, in the amber of some expressions, some phrases that just move forward and never have any kind of shift. And I think for that reason, Christmas songs, because they're written in a in an older era most of the mm-hmm. time. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that chart, but, like, most of our uh christmas songs that we know and love were written in like the baby boomers childhood you know it's like like a one to two year period you know is that because um radio entertainment was becoming more of a thing or is that because of the commercialization of christmas could be i don't know but so this word mary it's interesting for two reasons one is that uh it seems to have had some kind of i would say kind of 
uh, twin or pairing where it came up in a similar position to or similar sound to a word that meant something like a winter festival in ancient Greek. But mm -hmm. this is not the main one. The main one uh, was a German word, something like, I might say, Mergit uh, Jaws or something, who knows. But uh, <laughs> this word just meant kind of like short lasting. And so this mm -hmm. idea, same, same root as like mirth, you know. And the idea there was ask, just... Yeah. Was just that like you um if you're feeling happy time goes more quickly you know time flies so oh. happiness is something that kind of speeds up time in that way oh oh that's kind of a really deep way of looking at it yeah yeah um on the uh, uh speaking <laughs> um the next one that i have is actually joy uh circa 1200 uh, thereabouts um this is of course french and it being french uh there are uh some sexual uh connotations of the word joy uh it is described as the feeling of pleasure or delight uh joie from the latin gaudia um it's ordinary uh, like originally when it was uh first used in the 1200s it did indicate um erotic and now uh, erotic uh, pleasure and now it indicates something a little bit more holy was uh, you might understand this as a the word rejoice mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we basically only ever use for biblical and religious purposes yeah you're right there's, there's that song like joy to the world mm -hmm. the lord is born a son is born a child is born I don't know. joy to the world <laughs> the lord has come the lord has come sure yeah 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 yeah, I think that's actually a sex thing too, right? I, I wonder how much of it was from like this real uh, conflating that happened uh, amongst, you know, nuns and monks between um, re like godly divine joy and uh, orgasm. I mean, really, like mm -hmm. there, there's lots of examples from, you know, the uh, the um diet journals i suppose of like saints uh, especially uh uh where they're describing kind of like their experience of the lord coming to them of like having this feeling of uh encountering jesus and this kind of you know obviously he didn't i don't think even they thought he like physically came to them and they saw him or something but uh right. and it really feels as if they're describing this like orgasm like they're they're and probably they were, you know, probably they're somehow edging almost, you know, they're somehow approaching it <laughs> in some way, you know, so I, like, I think that was like, not a prophecy. That was a wet dream. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And okay. So you took it there. I was about to say, I'm about to say some really offensive stuff as an atheist, but <laughs> like, I mean, I, we already covered WAP. I don't really know that we can go any bluer. <laughs> well, I mean, there's blue is one thing, but like uh, disrespectful of other people's like cherished religious beliefs. Is oh, another. oh, okay. But sorry. I'm gonna go there anyway. I was just gonna say it's for like, some reason that just didn't feel as vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on your values, I suppose. Yeah. But, but when you're, you know, you have this religion, you have a religion where you're supposed to experience this like divine level of joy mm -hmm. and wonder and happiness, you know, and if if we assume that God does not exist, you know, who knows, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but you have to then say like, okay, where is it, you know, and so I think mm -hmm. probably for this reason, like, 
you you end up with a lot of confusion about you know like uh, what happiness is, how do you experience it, where does it come from, what does the experience of feeling God feel like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think for that reason things get really mixed up. Like I I want to jump to, and I'll I guess I'll let you talk a little about Christianity after this, but you you know I think that now like I I started going to a therapist, a psychologist. Um, not that long ago, you know, uh, mm-hmm. being an American, we often don't have health insurance. It's pretty hard for people to go yeah. to, to a psychologist or something, but you know, congratulations by the way. Yeah. Thank, I mean, now I'm not, but um, now oh, I'm back oh. into the position of being too poor, I guess. But, <clears throat> um, like one thing that I think is kind of like, just like getting ice water thrown on you is like, mm-hmm. I think without without modern psychology, we imagine happiness, we really overthink of it, and we think about it in very, like, um, metaphorical, um, philosophical ways, you know, whereas mm-hmm. I think that going to therapy, a lot of it is them just, like, kind of, you know, putting their finger to your lips and giving you, like, <laughs> these very, very simplistic, very almost disappointing piece of pieces of advice about like sleeping regularly like getting exercise every day drinking water breathing well you know stuff like this you know (laughs) it turns out that a lot of happiness is circumstantial yeah and i think whenever you're in a religion or just a cultural philosophy where happiness is supposed to be this like uh kind of magical thing by by Mm -hmm. definition i think that really it just confuses people you know i I think i think we we accidentally made happiness something that you couldn't get you know okay so uh, let's try to see if we can't uh, make that a little bit more attainable because i have done a lot of research on what makes happiness attainable to the regular person. Oh, cool. uh, first of all, that understanding that happiness is this unattainable idea, that largely comes from Christianity. Um, <laughs> let's see, it was uh, St. Augustine, around the 5th century, he wrote a City of God, and he was the first one who ever wrote, the earthly quest for happiness is doomed, which is a very cheerful way of saying that. Uh, basically, don't look for happiness because it, you're not going to find it. The only way to achieve any sort of um, satisfaction is uh, in the next life. So good luck. Just be a good person and get there. Um, that was confronted in the 13th century by Thomas Aquinas, who said uh, uh, eudaimonia. And uh, Now, eudaimonia is uh, a concept that uh, came from the Greek uh, basically, you up higher, and daemon uh, being a, de- a demon, more specifically a spirit or right, more a like, god. More like spirits, not like a negative yeah. connotation. As we yeah, it's now. more uh, it more um, closely uh, translated. It's like a guardian angel. Something, yeah, and, and we we talk about, but we talk about spirits in similar ways. Now you could say he's mm-hmm. in high spirits. Right. Or even, of course, Christianity has adopted this to talk about, like, the Holy Spirit, you know. 
And in the 13th century, uh, Thomas Aquinas actually said that eudaimonia, that that uh, feeling that has been conflated with happiness and that it's circumstantial, uh, the luckiness, the spirits are on your side, the uh, uh, you have uh, whatever universal good is on is out there is on your side. Um, that can be a way to become closer to God is what Thomas Aquinas says. And. Of course, it wasn't until the 16th century that Martin Luther, uh, the famous Protestant who uh, did not approve of a whole lot of the Catholic teachings, uh, said, quote, Christians should be merry. To live life a justified man is to experience this world as a pleasure garden for the soul. Um, notably, this is about when um, sexy, happy words started to move to England. So, <laughs> yeah, and in in Calvinism, they had this sense that like, um, if you were, you know, uh, a good Christian, let's say you were following God in the right way, mm -hmm. you would probably be a happy person. Like this was kind of this idea that you have these outward signs of being happy. I mean, presumably because you're not like wrapped with, you know, mm -hmm. guilt and this like uh, discord of your your struggle with God, you know. Yeah, and the Indians also had a very um, uh, uh, religious view of happiness as well. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna describes there's three types of happiness. There is sattvic, which is pure happiness. Uh, that is the elevation of the soul. Uh, he describes this as something that feels like poison in the beginning, but nectar in the end. Then he describes rajasik, which is the resultant happiness, which is happiness that comes from your circumstances. So happiness that comes from having your needs satisfied or getting that gift that you really wanted or um, physical pleasure, gratification, passion. It's all regarded as a temporary happiness, however. Um, it's uh, The first taste is like nectar, but it tastes like poison in the end. And then there is the third happiness, which you think that uh, according to like how stories should go, that the first happiness is imperfect, the second happiness is imperfect, the third happiness has got to be just right, right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. Tamasik is the slothful happiness, which I am already on board for. Um, it is regarded as the lowest happiness, however, uh, the happiness that you get from just sleeping and being lazy. Uh, but it is a, not a true happiness as it does not nurture the soul. So uh, Krishna says, uh, ignore tamasik, don't pursue slothful happiness. It's better to go for sattvic and rajasik. Oh, I see. And I think you end up with a kind of situation where you don't just assume that you're supposed to be happy like all the time or perfectly mm -hmm. happy or whatever because they all have their drawbacks, you know. Mm-hmm. Of course. And a lot of the Hindu uh, religion is about pursuing this balance. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess also, though, um, Hindu with the Hinduism with this concept of like reincarnation, I suppose they they probably fall in a similar uh, land in a similar place as Christianity with this idea that like you can't be totally happy here on this world. You mm -hmm. know? I, I also think that now we see a a Christianity that seems to be largely influenced by what's popularly called the prosperity gospel, where um, mm -hmm. it's presumed that 
you will be really happy here, you know, and successful. And, um, and that if you're not, then probably there's something wrong with you. You know, it's like we've come back to this kind of a uh, grim fairy tales uh, sense of happiness again, where you assume that, you know, the, the beautiful, rich people are also like happy and virtuous, you know. You know, it's so funny. I was actually waiting in uh, an office for an inter a job interview this week, and um, the office was playing this song on the radio, and it was so funny. The refrain was, um, I know that money can't buy happiness, uh, but it can buy me a boat. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this this idea like money can't buy happiness, though, has been rightly pointed out to be pretty cruel itself you know because mm -hmm. i think that generally it, it really does make you pretty happy to have your your needs met to have mm -hmm. the things that you uh want to be comfortable in life you know i i think it i think this this idea that money can't buy happiness of course you don't want to equate being rich with being happy but you also don't want to I think whenever they say money can't buy happiness, they're they're still living in that camp of like uh, happiness is this abstract that actually if you really try to pick it apart, it doesn't have any definition and nobody's happy, you know. You know, a lot of people have really tried to break it down to its component parts over yeah, the years. It's true. Um, personally, I think the people that come the closest are the hedonists. Okay, let's hear it. And that is uh, uh, just a... Uh, largely personal and i thought that this would be kind of fun if um we start with a what what's your understanding of the hedonist philosophy i really just picture like hedonism bot in futurama like eating the grapes you know? <laughs> that's pretty much my whole idea of it. it seems to be a couch and grape based philosophy <laughs> so the hedonists um uh have they're characteristically they chase pleasure Pleasure is the highest uh, ideal of the human soul. Um, what I thought it would also kind of be a little bit fun if we speculated about, I'm going to talk about three different hedonist philosophies, and kind of speculated about what Dungeons and Dragons alignment we would consider this philosophy. Okay. So I want to start with uh, Epicurus, who was a cir a circa about 307 BCE. Um, his more, more familiar to us is like Epicurean, like the Epicurean exactly. philosophy now. Oh. Exactly. Uh, both the Epicurean philosophy and Epicurean delights uh, generally become, um, uh, what would you call an Epicurean delight? That's more of like a amuse-bouche, sort of a snack, a delicious um, food, correct? Yeah, sure, sure. Just generally thought to be some kind of sensual pleasure for the senses type thing. Yeah. Sensual pleasure. There you go. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. So um, Ep Epicurus uh, believes that the greatest good is to seek modest, sustainable pleasure. Mm -hmm. And this is how he defined happiness. Happiness is uh, a combination of ataraxia, which is tranquility and lack of fear. Mm -hmm. And um, aponia, which is having all of your needs met. Uh, so uh, not desiring anything. Um, and this is what he said was the desire of all hedonism. This combination of never uh, not having anything to fear and not having anything to want. Mm -hmm. 
So how would you characterize that uh, in D&D sort of alignment? I think it's just straight down the middle as far as I can tell. I, I think he's not talking about like doing something like... He isn't talking about like virtue, like doing virtuous good deeds as being the attainment of happiness. So to me, it doesn't seem that driven by like good, like ethics, but mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to be evil in any way as far as I'm concerned. And also I would say, I think I mostly agree. I mean, maybe if I hear the other options, I'll like see the <laughs> yeah. next even better thing. But I've always thought <laughs> in my vague understanding of Epicurus and everything i've always kind of thought yeah he's got it right you know i think mm-hmm. expecting anything more than that you're just going to be disappointed you're back in this field of like unattainably uh idealistic happiness you know yeah and i feel like uh he's very realistic and it's the sort of happiness that uh you can really write home that you can bring home to your family yeah it's yeah. um it's not glory it's not uh having epic poems written about you it could be as simple as uh going home and having a a good meal every night with your family yeah yeah and i i think i think there's a real problem here with like we really same thing we do with love where we really conflate a bunch of other concepts into just Mm -hmm. happy you know because you talk you could talk about the happiness of a moment i mean i guess we're back to like this indian uh hinduist concept now but like for us, we have this one word happy where it's like, if you just think about what makes you, at what times you experience happiness, this is much different from like, how do you attain happiness in life or something like mm-hmm. that, where you're probably, probably happiness as this like overarching concept, you can still experience some stress or tiredness or, or yeah. um, something, you know. So happiness is a state of being as in, in as opposed to an immediate feeling, an immediate sensation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what's the next guy? So um, we have uh, Democritus, about 400 BCE. Uh, Democritus is also known as the Daddy of Atoms. He's the, he was the first one to propose atomic theory, how things are uh, made up of smaller and smaller things. Oh, and um, what's his... Was his happiness somehow like miniatures based? Did he really? Was he like that uh, <laughs> that Steve Carell movie where he was like obsessed with the little miniature dolls? Oh my gosh, I did not see that one. Yeah, it had a really weird name, but it was like one of these kind of documentary ish things. I think it's based on a real person. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember seeing. Um, uh, I remember seeing ads about it. Gosh. Anyways, is, is Democritus uh, the? Yeah, um, <laughs> he Steve said Carell? that joy and sorrow are the hallmarks of beneficial and harmful. So that is how you tell if something is a good thing or a bad thing, is how it makes you feel. Does it call joy or sorrow? Well, I think because this is such like a, uh, such an ends-focused mm-hmm. uh, point of view, I think he must be the evil one. I think I think this sounds like a real villain, you know, where it's like his his whole philosophy can lead to this world where it's like you're just trying to prevent sorrow but you prevent it by like keeping everybody in like a matrix world you know oh okay all right in that case let's go to the Cyrenaic school uh fourth century bce um home uh it was headed by aristippus of serene um their basic tenant is all knowledge is sensation so for example you can uh, know that the taste in your tongue is sweet, but you can't know that that's because honey is sweet. 
All you know is that your tongue is is picking it up as sweetness. Okay. So kind of um, like a kind of an early progenitor of nihilism, the side that you can't yeah. really know things, you just know your experience of the things. And you can uh there's only one intrinsic good, which is pleasure. And you can get pleasure from altruism, sure, but altruism uh is the main function is of altruism is to derive pleasure from it. Mhm. Hmm. Um, well, they seem pretty neutral as well, I would say. You think? Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm how about you? I'm going to characterize them your... as neutral evil, at least. Oh, so you feel they're the evil ones? Oh, for sure. And who's the, do you feel what, the Epicureans are the good ones? I think so. I, I, I do think that uh, Epicurus, uh, uh, he has this um, philosophy of humanity as deserving of happiness and, like, because you're worth it, that I... I always sort of characterized as a, a good thing. Okay, makes sense. Well, you're the dungeon master, so I guess you know best. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, in addition to talking about a pop song and a etymological uh, character trait thing from that song, uh, <laughs> a little detail of the song, uh, we also talk about a little bit of Eurovision right at the end as kind of a little... Uh, Epicurean whipped cream on top. So <laughs> what did we talk about this time? Uh, this time we went with uh, Growing Up is Getting Old by Victoria. It was Bulgaria's entry into Eurovision this year. Um, what did you think of the song? I've heard it before, but it was your first time listening to it, right? Well, I gotta say, I mean, we were just talking about, so we were on this like no highway option podcast mm -hmm. last week uh we'll plug Listen it again no at highway the end. option it's a lot of fun it's really great they're really really funny guys uh and we were actually a little funny on there too so pleasant surprise <laughs> um but we watched uh boo uh, madea halloween mm -hmm. and we will tell you guys that again in like 10 minutes when we end the show but um <laughs> the they were talking about watching uh 22 jump street and about the tattoo of the uh, red herring on that guy's <laughs> right. arm. And I was thinking about how, you know, it's one of these situations where it's such a hugely clever uh, joke. Mm -hmm. But it's there's just no way to, like, fully give it the appreciation it really deserves. And, like, I, I saw this song title as, like, yeah, growing up is literally getting old, and she's <laughs> feeling like she's tired of it. Wow. <laughs> like, so, is like, this your first experience, like, feeling a song with multiple meanings? <laughs> I, it's definitely not my first experience, no, but I'm just saying it's a good one. And that's uh, just like your, yeah. your little, like, um, uh, remark to it there where you're like, oh, people do this all the time. Well, that's just my point. I mean, like... It's like we're in a world with so many jokes that you see a joke and you got to just be like, I've seen those before. I've seen jokes. <laughs> You're <laughs> right. Then, I, I'm not appreciating it the way that it is, but it is it is nice, clever wordplay. And then and then at the end, she said she she flipped it around on you. She said, getting up is growing old. And then my head just exploded. I was like, That's a pun, too. <laughs> I can't tell if you're being sarcastic. Exactly. See, that's uh, back to our sarcasm episode to talk about that. How, like, sarcasm gets in the way of sincere uh, communication, you know. So, um, for your benefit, how would you place this in the, uh, in the 
rankings of the Eurovision songs that you've heard so far? For my personal taste or for what I think? Yeah, for your personal taste. Oh, for my personal taste, pretty high, you know. Yeah? Um, I think nothing original. You know, it sounds like like a pretty, like it sounds like other indie songs, uh, indie rock type songs. And also it sounds like an old indie rock song. It it seems like it's like, it's not really quite with the times and with the trends. Like it sounds like she's copying indie music from like 10 years ago or something so yeah but i was sort of i was surprised when i uh when i heard the Billie eilish song uh, because i picked um i picked victoria before we uh, before i listened to um happier than ever and i was surprised that they had a lot of thematic elements that were very similar you mean in terms uh, of like the the content, like what the song's about? Or yeah, what? yeah. They both start um, with this very understated acoustic guitar, uh, gentle plucking that could uh, easily be replaced by ukulele. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's got this very sultry, um, thick, uh, kind of sleepy voice, a lot like Billie Eilish does. See, I I felt I had a totally different perception of her voice, where mm-hmm. I think she's singing more in that kind of like sort of precious kind of uh extra sing-songy uh singing a kid a nursery rhyme kind of way like uh coco rosie would always do as an old indie band oh, from like 20 years ago you know okay so for me my feeling about it was totally different of course the songs of course are very similar though mm-hmm. um i would say i did enjoy the song a lot because <laughs> for one thing it really tickled me and uh also, I mean, I do just generally enjoy that kind of music. I think it's a very, the the indie rock genre. I mean, I guess that's mm-hmm. what I came through college listening to. And I, uh, I have an affinity for it for sure. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's a great Eurovision song. You know, I don't think it really fits the spirit or the general genre that Eurovision is going for, you know. True. And it, uh, I will say that during the festival, um, uh, if you watch the full festival this does represent sort of like a lull it's in between mm-hmm. a couple of really poppy dancey fun songs so the contrast is very stark yeah and uh it's it's played out very simply she's on a dress she's wearing a very plain white dress um i believe the set is meant to look like a sinking ship and mm-hmm. she's just on the sinking ship just by herself singing um, it's definitely powerful in its simplicity, but you are right. Uh, it, it does have a, a genuine lack of that party element that you tend to get with a lot of, uh, really higher up there Eurovision songs. I can tell you that it did score 170 points, netting it 11th place in the final. That seems good. I mean, these numbers are so random and meaningless, but it sounds good. It sounds like a good number. Yeah, it's definitely better than, uh, for example, uh, Embers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, much better. Yeah, good for them. Uh, good for them. And I was curious. I, 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 I know that we both have feelings about um, using English as the uh, well, lingua franca for Eurovision songs. Um, a lot of... There's a lot more languages in Europe than just English and French. And sometimes it's really nice to hear songs in their original. But uh, 
I will say, I don't know if uh, this could have worked as well in Bulgarian. and I think lyrically it works very well in English. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to compare when you don't have it. But, uh, of course, it's like you say, like, sometimes it's nice to hear in mm-hmm. English. Sometimes it's nice to hear not in English. I don't mind the... That it's a choice. It's their choice to make. As good reasons to choose to sing something in English. I hope it never becomes the only language that people sing in. You know, because honestly, personally, I appreciate how if you're listening to a song in a language you don't know, you are not distracted by the the. You're not influenced mm-hmm. by the content, the the words in the song. You know, you can you can listen to it just as music, just as sound. You know. And that's always really okay. fun. Uh, I was thinking about how amazing it is that, you know, I would say for speakers, for people speaking, I think it's a very limited few people who can really completely uh, eradicate their native accent. You know, mm-hmm. if they decide to start living in another country, speaking another language, I think only people who have this kind of natural knack for like, impersonation like the same people who would become like comedy actors or whatever impersonating like the president or something sure. I, I think they they do it really well it's a skill that they have but most people don't have it you know but mm-hmm. with a with singing with music i think a lot of it is like we just are not so finely uh sensitive to hear those variations because i mean it's almost never that I hear a song and think, oh, that person doesn't sound like they're American, you know? Mm. Um, with the very rare exception of uh, the twins who sang 500 Miles. Yeah, yeah, or Bjork. Bjork sounds a little odd. That Bjork does not sound American. <laughs> she doesn't. I will give you that. But I, I think with both of them, it's probably more a choice than a, than yeah, a necessity. Yeah, yeah, Okay. But I, I just think it's so strange and that we can so much easier um, s- jump to a different... It sounds almost like a different accent in singing, you know. And, and I don't think people are trying extra hard to do it. I think it's just somehow it's easier to sing. I, I think They're because... making a point with their Scottishness, I think. <laughs> I, I, think I think it's like... I think probably when we sing we're probably generally changing from how we would talk, you know, I mean, for various mm-hmm. reasons. I mean, we talked about this a little bit way back when we were talking about industry baby. I mean, we just don't sing in the same way we talk. And so because we're, you know, fitting things around the melody and the syllable structure and the rhythm, the everything changes. So you no longer really sound like you have a particular accent to some extent, you know? Yeah. Okay. So, um, that said, uh, uh, are there any characteristics about the Bulgarian language that we should know about? Well, it's a very interesting language, actually. Uh, this is, of course, a, a Slavic language, so the same language group as like Russian and, and Czech and Ukrainian, mm-hmm. uh, etc. Um, this is from the South Slavic region, kind of some, somehow related to like South the... South Mas- the Slavic region. Sure, sure. Oh, somehow, sorry. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> somehow related to like the Macedonian uh, language group something like that. Uh, one very interesting thing about it is that it has uh, nine verb tenses. Uh, Ooh, sounds like a... a lot. It's not actually that many. Uh, English has 12, so it's not like it's a crazy <laughs> number. Um, but 
It's a bit odd for a Slavic language because Russian and most other Slavic languages just have three. They just have a present, a past, and a future, and that's it. Simple as that. And that's uh, really interesting. Uh, Bulgaria has this kind of history of close relation and association with uh, Turkish uh, as a as a culture as a language group. Um, they were at some point a part of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which mm -hmm. was this kind of Turkish uh, empire that sort of inhabited a similar place in the world as Rome, you know, sure. after Rome fell. And so for that reason, there's a lot of Turkish influence in the language. And even we see a similar thing happen as we saw with Azerbaijan last week, where uh, whenever the U USSR came into prominence, they kind of tried to pull that language a bit more towards the the Russian, you know, towards right. the Slavic languages. And so in that way, it's a bit more Slavic than it, it once was. But uh, I say that and it, it's kind of is a Russian centric thing to say, because actually, it's, of course, it's a very Slavic language itself. Russian, uh, I'm sure, has all of its influences from other neighbors as well. Uh, one thing especially Slavic about Bulgarian is um, actually it's the birthplace of the Cyrillic alphabet. Two Bulgarians invented uh, Cyrillic, this alphabet really? that Russia and many other Slavic languages use. Oh, wow. Uh, when else did the Cyrillic alphabet come to? Let's see. I have that written here. Let me uh, just find it real quick. <laughs> and by real quick, I mean really slowly. Um, this was in the 9th century that it was invented by uh, two, two guys who were later sainted for some reason named uh, Cyril and Methodius. Cyril? Did he name it after himself? It must be. Yeah, it must be. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Um, coming back to this idea of the verb tenses. So one that Bulgarian has that it shares with Turkish, but uh, doesn't share with English, obviously doesn't share with the other Slavic languages, is what's called a, um, a inferential verb tense. Ooh. And this is this idea that you want to talk about something that you don't know. But you infer, you you make some like educated guess that it's it's true, right? Oh, like so, um, talking about the theory of gravity or um, <laughs> evolution. I I think it's even even uh, less concrete stuff than that. So it's like something that you think probably happened, um, something that you would have to say like allegedly happened or something. Oh, like, like if that. you see um, a glass of milk on the floor and a cat sitting on the table. Uh, with its paw standing out, you can say uh, that that tense would be used as in that cat probably knocked that glass of milk onto the floor. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and we, have, we have ways to do this in English. The, the most common one we use is must, right? So in that, in that situation, you'd mm -hmm. say, ah, oh, the cat must have knocked it on the floor, mm -hmm. right? Or you must be hungry, right? Or, or oh, you must yeah, be yeah. tired right after you get home from a day of work. So this is infer an inferential structure, right? But uh, obviously we don't have a specific verb tense for it in English. And we use must, which um, in its most basic form is supposed to mean something like you, you have to do this, you need to do this, you know, it's the mm -hmm. rules to do it, right? Um, so, so Bulgarian has an actual um, word for that. And then, so 
possibly a good connection from Bulgarian to um, this idea of happiness, the etymology of mm -hmm. happiness. There was one word I found that people were suggesting putting forth as one of these like untranslatable words. And uh, they, they have in Bulgarian, but not an equivalent in English. And this word was, and of course, I don't know the pronunciation. So this will sound pretty far off, but uh, A-Y-L-Y-A-K in Roman lettering. So A-Lake or A-Lake, something like that. And um, this is like this kind of um, uh, idea of not taking anything too personally, taking your time with things and just enjoying your time to the fullest. Right. Oh, I like that. So That's is it, but is it wholesome happiness? Is it a word that we don't have an equivalent for? I think that's the real question. Ooh, um, sort of just taking your time uh, and enjoying the stop and smell the roses, but we don't have anything more succinct than that. I don't yeah, think. yeah. I mean, uh, we have some similar things in like laid back or easygoing, but they don't necessarily yeah. have a straight connection to happiness, right? Even I was thinking about Easy this idea please. of like slacking or slacker or something like that, you know? <laughs> well, uh, I can tell you that uh, Krishna would probably identify that as tamasik. Tamasik. And what is tamasik? Uh, the slothful happiness. The slothful. Yeah, sure. The slothful happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just slothing it up. Yeah, um, for sure. So I, I think that brings us rather nicely to this question of, Hannah, what is happiness for you? Like, what is your best, the, the most happiest possible, I guess, uh, scenario you could attain, like, in your life? Or, the um, absolute yeah. biggest happiness that I can imagine is it's raining outside and I have a cup of perfectly warm not too hot uh coffee uh that tastes a little bit minty and i have a dog sleeping on my feet and i am listening to npr how about you what's really what nice. is your biggest happiness and before uh yeah what is your biggest happiness first of all sure so if i were to try to like let's say i have a day off and i'm trying to create my happiest possible moment um it's very different from yours, but I, I always, <laughs> I always think about it somehow. I, I think I've never actually done it, but having like music playing and having like a podcast playing at the same time, <laughs> right? So either doing like an earbud and then clamshell earphone combination or having one ear doing one thing, one ear the other. So I'd be doing that. Um, I'd be, uh, running at the gym because i don't like running outside because <laughs> i don't like weather <laughs> uh, i think it would be raining still actually just like yours and mm -hmm. um uh I, that's about everything i mean i would have recently drank some coffee but obviously i'm not drinking it like no wild. because you're running i'm running yeah we yeah. have very very different ideas of the good happiness <laughs> Yeah. And uh, before we say goodbye, may I say happy birthday? Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah. I hope that you can listen to music and podcasts. Speak uh, and uh, of the podcasts you should listen to uh, if you're going to be listening to some podcasts uh, to feel happy. Why don't you give uh, high, uh, No Highway an option a try? It's a fun podcast about uh, movies and whether or not certain movies are better or worse than Vin Diesel's The Pacifier. 
Yeah, no highway option. So uh, our episode, which we did last week, which dropped on this most recent Tuesday to us, probably two Tuesdays ago for you guys, uh, was Boo, the Medea Halloween movie. Which was definitely a movie. It was a movie, yeah. You can listen <laughs> yourself to confirm it. <laughs> I think the episode is just slightly longer than the movie itself. So which one is the faster, <laughs> faster route to determine the goodness of the movie? Hard to say. <laughs> Anyways, this has been Pop Etymology. I'm Russell. I'm Hannah. Uh, you can find us... Uh, online at popetymology.com, on Twitter at popetymology, and you can email us at popetymology at gmail.com. And I hope you guys have a great day and a happy birthday if sure. it's your birthday. Yeah, yeah. Party like it's your birthday, even if it's not. <laughs>